Where is rest to be found? How can we attain rest? Now, to be clear, I'm not talking about physical rest. No, I know where to find physical rest. When my body is exhausted, when the physical burdens of the day have worn me out, when my muscles and bones ache and I'm feeling weary, I know where to find rest. Usually if I can take a hot shower, kick my feet up on the couch, and binge watch Netflix or read a good book until I fall asleep, then more than likely I will wake up feeling refreshed. That's simple. But where do I go? What do I do when it is my soul that is exhausted? Where is rest to be found for a weary and burdened soul? Where do we go, Grace, when the guilt and shame of our sin has left us in misery? Where do we go when the pain and suffering of living in a fallen world among fallen and sinful people, that includes us, has left our souls weighed down. Where is the rest that our souls need to be found? There are so many people in our world today, both inside the church and outside the church, who need to be be reminded or need to hear for the first time where true rest can be found. You see, the world in its wisdom will try and offer you a system or a philosophy or a practical method to find rest. But as Christians, we know that there is nothing in this creation, nothing designed by man or conceived by him that can carry the burden of what your soul truly needs. That's why God, in his infinite wisdom, didn't offer us a system or a philosophy or a practical method. He offered us himself in the person of his son. And we will spend our time together this morning in a passage that addresses those whose souls are exhausted, whose souls are weighed down with sin, guilt, and shame, and all the other burdens that this life throws on them. And points them to find their rest in Christ alone. So if you take nothing away from this sermon this morning. Except one thing. Let it be this. The rest that your weary soul needs is found in Christ alone. Come to him. Come to Jesus and find your rest. That truth will be our destination today. So open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be in chapter 11 from verses 25 to 30 this morning in what is probably one of the most well-known passages in the Gospels. Hear the word of the Lord. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding And revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. 
And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now the first thing I'd like to speak on in this passage is that if we are to find rest in Jesus, if we are to come to him, we first need the Father to graciously reveal him to us. Now let's look at the first two verses of this passage again. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now the first three words of this passage, at that time, hints at the fact that what Jesus is saying here is connected to the passage that preceded it earlier in this chapter. So in order to fully understand what is going on here and to know what Jesus is giving thanks and praise to his Father for, we need to go back and familiarize ourselves with what preceded these verses. We need some context. So follow me for a moment back to verses 20 through 24. Then... Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So, in this, in this passage, we see Jesus pronouncing these woes and indictments and judgments against these cities in and around Galilee where Jesus had come through and preached the gospel of the kingdom, that the kingdom of God is at hand, and the proper response to Jesus and his message is to repent and believe. That's a, a major theme in this gospel. And he performed miracles in these cities. He healed the sick and he healed the paralyzed and he casted out demons. He preached a message and performed the signs that declared that God, Yahweh, was at work in their midst. And what was their response to all these mighty works? Admiration for Jesus? Maybe. Amazement of Jesus? Probably. But the Son of God was not looking for admiration or amazement from his audience. 
The result he was seeking was repentance. And the people in these cities did not repent. And he goes on to tell them that on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for those notoriously evil Gentile cities than it will be for those Jewish uh, cities who had heard the message, seen the miracles, witnessed the Messiah at work, and yet blinded by their own worldly wisdom and arrogance, did not repent. And so what's Jesus' response to all that? In verses 25 to 26, he turns and he offers a prayer of praise and thankfulness to his Father. The same event is mentioned in Luke 10. And Luke says that Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. But why? Why in being rejected, why in having these cities remain in their unrepentance, is Jesus praising and thanking his Father? I don't know, but my immediate reaction after sharing the gospel with someone and having that person say, hear you loud and clear, great message, great presentation. Oh, and by the way, I want nothing to do with it. In that instance, I'm not naturally inclined to rejoice and to break out in a doxology of praise and thankfulness. Yet, that is, that, that is exactly what Jesus does. He does so because he says that in all of that, his Father's gracious will is still being fulfilled. What these verses show us is that God the Father has chosen to conceal the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom, to conceal the identity of his son, to conceal the mystery of salvation from those who would be considered wise and understanding in this world, from those whom the world would look at and say, those folks are impressive. I could see how God wants them on, the, on his team. And he has chosen to reveal them to little children, those whom the world would overlook I mean, when you think about it, the majority of those who follow Jesus, when you look at his disciples, not, mer- not very many of them would be considered impressive in the sight of their peers. They were fishermen, tax collectors, crazy zealots, immoral men and women who were often outcast by the religious leaders and abandoned by the rest of society. And Jesus looks at them, this ragtag group of rough-around-the-edges folk, and he praises his Father for them. He gives thanks that these are the people that his Father has given to him. Now, as a side note, this isn't to say that God never saves those who are wise, educated, or arrogant and prideful. Look at the Apostle Paul. He was definitely all of those things. But here's the point Jesus is making here. No amount of human wisdom or cleverness has ever contributed anything to the salvation and rest that Jesus alone provides. And on the other end of things, there is none of such a lowly status that they would ever be prevented from entering into the salvation and rest. 
that Jesus alone provides. God does not save his people because of anything in and of themselves. He saves us despite ourselves. He saves us because he is gracious. I don't know what it is, but there is something about human knowledge and worldly wisdom that makes it so difficult for those who possessed it to trust in Jesus. The Jews who rejected Jesus back then and all people who have rejected him to, to this day all have one thing in common. They trust in their own wisdom, their own knowledge. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that wisdom and knowledge are evil or sinful in and of themselves. In fact, wisdom and knowledge rooted in the truth of God is to be pursued. It's the wisdom and knowledge of the world that we're speaking of here. And by them, no man will ever see the kingdom. And the Bible seems to teach that when sinful human beings lay hold of that type of wisdom, they often tend to be filled with pride and arrogance. And actually, that can lead to God opposing them and hardening their hearts. Instead, we see more often than not God calling those rather average folks into his kingdom. As it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Many of you were not wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God has chosen out of this world a people for himself that the world itself would have never chosen, so that God and God alone will get the glory for our salvation. God and God alone will get the praise for the rest that he gives to weary sinners. And so he reveals his son, the source of our rest, to those who could have never discovered him on their own. That is glorious news. That is grace. Being wise and understanding in the worldly sense, or wise and clever, or wise and educated, as other translations say, had absolutely no bearing on our coming to Christ. It wasn't because we had anything to offer God or because we were such awesome people. It wasn't because we just get it and other people don't. It had absolutely nothing to do with us and everything to do with grace. It was by grace alone and praise God for it. Listen, church, this is, a not, this is not a knock on any of us here. But I'm sure we can all agree that we did not come to Jesus by our own human wisdom. If you are a child of God whose sins have been forgiven 
and you've been justified and declared righteous, it is because our God is gracious and merciful and he has condescended, he has stooped down low to us and it pleased him to reveal his son to us and to offer us the rest that is found in Christ alone. Had God not revealed his son to us, we would have never found him on our own. I'm fully convinced by scripture and the experience of my own depravity that had he not by his grace revealed the beauty of his son to me, I would never have come to him. I would never have come to him. I was a fool who thought himself to be wise. My assurance, my hope was in my own wisdom. And you know where that got me? In prison. And it wasn't until years later when in grace and mercy he revealed his son to me by the power of his Holy Spirit. He opened my eyes to his goodness. He showed me my sin and my need for his son. He gave me spiritual life and he renewed my will and enabled me to respond to him in faith and repentance. And in him I have found rest. It was all by his grace from start to finish. Had he never revealed his son to me, I would have never came to him. Nobody here would have. But because he is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, and because he is gracious and merciful to weary sinners, he has revealed his son to us, and we, like Jesus, can now respond with praise and gratefulness, and we can rejoice in the Holy Spirit that he has called us, and by his grace, we can come confidently to him and find rest. So come to Jesus. Secondly, as much as we need the Father to graciously reveal his Son to us, we need the Son to graciously reveal to us the Father. Verse 27 reads, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So if we keep in mind from verses 25 through 26, Jesus tells us that it is the Father who graciously reveals his Son to us. He, by the power of his Spirit, opens our eyes spiritually so that we can see the Son for who he is. And he enables us now to freely come to him in faith and repentance. Now as we read in verse 27, Jesus turns to his disciples and declares that in the authority that the Father has given him, he then by his grace must reveal the Father to us making known to us what the Father is like. Jesus is saying, nobody knows me. Nobody sees me for who I truly am except my Father in heaven. And nobody sees him and knows him like I see him and know him. You want to know what God is like? You need to come to me. He's telling his disciples here that if they truly want to know God, They can't go to the Pharisees or the scribes or the teachers of the law or the philosophers of their day. Their knowledge is incomplete and lacking, and all they can offer weary sinners is more law, not rest. They need to come to Jesus. Jesus is describing here the depth and the bond and the exclusivity of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. This is a relationship that no one else in all creation experiences. 
The language in this verse sounds very much like the language John uses in his gospel when describing the relationship between Jesus and the Father. In John 14, 8 through 11, it says, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. There is no knowing God apart or separated from knowing Jesus Christ. You want to experience the rest that only God can give? got to come to Jesus. That was the message for Jesus' disciples then, and it's the message for us today. If we want to know God, the Father, we must come through God, the Son. We need to come to Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through him. But coming to the holy and righteous God of all creation can be intimidating for weary and burdened sinners. These folks that Jesus was speaking to couldn't even measure up to the Pharisees' standards. They were looked down upon by the religious leaders. They spent their life being told by the wise and understanding people of the world that they were unclean, unfit, and unworthy. And now they're expected to draw near to a holy God through Jesus? This brings me to my final point. What draws weary and burdened sinners to seek rest in a holy God is to know that in being holy, he is also gentle and lowly. Look at verses 28 through 29. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In reference to this passage, theologian and author of Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland says, In the one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer down into the core of who he is. We are not told that he is austere and demanding in heart. We are not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. We are not even told that he is joyful and generous in heart. Letting Jesus set the terms His surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. The only one who can forgive our sin. The only one who can give our exhausted souls rest. Says that we we can come to him and we need not fear him 
because he is gentle and lowly in heart when he deals with his people. That right there, ladies and gentlemen, is the sweetest invitation ever given. He starts off by inviting all who labor and are heavy laden. This can also be translated as all who are weary and burdened. In this immediate context, he's speaking to those who have grown weary and exhausted from trying to justify themselves under the Mosaic law and the strict traditions imposed on them by the Pharisees. He tells them to take his yoke upon themselves. This idea of a yoke is that of an agricultural device that was strapped to the necks of two oxen and it was used uh, to, uh, to pull heavy loads. The law was like a yoke attached to the necks of the people and it would weigh them down and exhaust them. There was no rest from this labor. No matter how much they worked, it was never enough. Their sin in front of the backdrop of the law was a constant reminder of their guilt. Now we know that the law of God is good. It reveals God's righteous and holy standard. So the problem isn't with God's law. The problem is with us. We are by our very nature sinful. And we are law breakers, not law keepers. That's the source of our misery. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 6, article 6 says, Every sin both original and actual, is a transgression of the righteous law of God and contrary to it. Therefore, every sin in its own nature brings guilt upon the sinner on account of which he is bound over to the holy wrath of God and the curse of the law. Consequently, he is subject to death with all miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal. These weary and burdened sinners were exhausted by their sin and the demand of the law. And the Pharisees and scribes and the teachers of the law said, you know what the problem, your problem is? You just need a little more law. And Jesus is saying, quit looking to find rest in that which cannot give you rest and look to me. That's the proper use of the law. When we come before the law and we see our guilt, we don't run to the law We let the law point us to Jesus. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. It is light and my burdens are easy. And Jesus says that to all of us today who need soul rest. Come to me. The only requirement from you is that your souls are exhausted and weary and you're tired of carrying around the burden of your sin and your guilt and your shame. Jesus is the law keeper who says to all of us law breakers that we can find rest for our souls in him because he has paid the price for our sin. He took upon himself the yoke of the law and absorbed the wrath of the Father that was meant for us at the cross. So that now we can come to him 
and take upon his yoke. A yoke that he shares with us. We're yoked to him. We're in union with him. And whatever he calls us to do, we know that he will empower us by his grace to do it. He will teach us and he will instruct us and he will be our our guide. And he will do it with gentleness because he is a kind master. Come to him. He and he alone can give you the rest that your soul needs. Maybe you're listening today and you don't know Christ as Savior. You don't have the type of rest that only he can give. You may have an understanding that there is a God and in either word or deed or thought, you've fallen short of his standard and you know you are guilty. And you've sat through this sermon and you've heard the invitation that he offers. And I pray, as you should pray, that the Father, by his grace, through the power of his Holy Spirit, would reveal his Son to you. And that he would grant you repentance and faith. That rather Jesus saying to you one day, woe to you, you would come to the realization today and say, woe is me. And run to him. He will not turn away any who come to him. So come to him today. Come to Jesus and find rest for your soul. He will breathe new life into you. He will put his spirit inside you. He will not only forgive your sin, but he will remember it no more. He will impute to you his righteousness. So that now when the father looks at you, He doesn't see your sinfulness. He sees the perfect obedience of Christ. And he will call you his child. God, I pray you come to him. The only thing that you must bring are the empty hands of faith and a weary and exhausted soul. Come to Jesus. He's gentle. Or maybe you've been a believer for a while now. It's okay. You can still come to him. I'm sure that there is still some sin in your life that you need to lay down at his feet, that you need to hand over to him. And you can do that confidently and with assurance that he will not be harsh with you. That sin was already paid for at the cross outside Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. You can come to him He is pleased when his people come to him with their sin, with their worry, with their fear. He takes all the weariness and all the burdens and he gives them more of himself. And here's the beautiful part of that. Since Jesus is infinite and we as his people are finite, guess what? That means that there there is always more of him to be had by us. So come to him. Christian, come to Jesus today, tomorrow, and forevermore. And rest in him.
Let me leave you with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Do not tell me that there is no rest till we get to heaven. We who have believed in Jesus enter into rest even now. Why should we not do so? Our salvation is complete. The robe of righteousness in which we are clad is finished. The atonement for our sins is fully made. We are reconciled to God, beloved of the Father, preserved by his grace, and supplied by his providence with all that we need. We carry all our burdens to him, and we leave them at his feet. We spend our lives in his service, and we find his ways to be of pleasantness, and his paths to be paths of peace. Oh, yes, we have found rest unto our souls. I recollect the first day that I ever rested in Christ. And I did rest that day. And so will all of you who trust in Jesus as I trusted in him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the rest that you have provided for us in your son, Jesus Christ. We are so grateful that our rest in him isn't dependent on anything in and of ourselves, but solely on your sovereign and gracious will. What a beautiful and marvelous plan of redemption it is, Father, that you are the God who keeps covenant with your people. The salvation for us that you had ordained in eternity past was fully accomplished at Calvary by your son 2,000 years ago. And today, still, your Holy Spirit is applying that work to your people as you call and reveal your son to them. Thank you, Lord. In your son's name we pray. Amen.